Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's my co-host. <laughs> loves the minions. Loves Deadpool. And Among Us, too. He's my co-host. Crazy about Funkos. Loves Grogu. And the MCU. Now it's a long day. Farting in Reseda. There's a freeway. Running through my ass. And I'm a bad boy. For doing little farting. And I'm a bad boy. For farting out my ass And I'm free Free farting Yeah, free Free farting <laughs> That's it That's, that's all you get it all you get. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> always, leave, always leave him wanting. Always leave him wanting more. Always leave him wanting more. Yep. Uh, and I don't know why you would, why you would want more after that. But if you want more, we did our job. That's that's the mark of a great parody song. <laughs> they leave you wanting a little more farting at the end. I I I have missed those. It has been almost two months since I have heard a Noah Marger original parody song. Yeah, and uh, we're back, baby. We're back. Uh, we're, I'm back. In the, I'm back up in this bitch, <laughs> baby. There was a there was an unreleased Chance the Rapper song that I used to listen to on YouTube a lot, mm. uh, and I don't remember. I think it's might literally be called Back Up in the Stew, like quite literally. And he literally just used to go, I'm back up in this, I'm back up in this thing. <laughs> and I loved that when I was like six, 16 or 17. I want to say one thing. Yeah. Just if it's one unreleased, thing. how did, if it's unreleased, how come you heard it? Isn't oh, it Mason, 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 you got me. <laughs> you fucking got me. Seems like somehow it was released, but I, I get what you're saying. That's yeah. cool. That was it was on, on YouTube. It was on YouTube. You it. it was on YouTube. That's how I heard it. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the Sunday Candy music? Sunday Candy music video. Not the music video, but I remember the song. I actually gotcha. I don't like that album all that much, but that is a great song. Yeah, that is a great song. That is a great song. Good music video. What's the music? What? Hey, Mason. What's the music yeah. video for Sunday Candy? Uh, it's kind of, it's just, it's just, um, it's hard to describe because it is just basically a one It's more just like the energy. It makes me feel good. And, and, uh, that song makes me feel good. That video I think is a good, um, representation of the feeling that that song gives you just, it ends with a, a, a big old dance number. I like it. I think it's, I think it's good. That was like, it's hard. It's weird to, to chart his trajectory because, Acid Rap comes out in like 2013, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it's not everyone knows about Chance the Rapper, not everyone knows about Acid Rap, but those who are in the mm-hmm. know are like, this guy is 
like unstoppable. Like this is like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Then he yeah. does Sunday Candy. Then like if you didn't already know about him, which like how could you not have at that moment? He was on the first track of Life of Pablo, Ultralight Beam, which mm-hmm. is arguably one of the best songs on the whole album. And his verse rocks. And then yeah. it's like, what the fuck happened after that, you know? Then it's, then it's, uh, is the next album Coloring Book? Do I remember that correctly? With, where he's wearing the, the three hat? Yeah, does that, it, it is. I'm trying to remember, is, does that come out before or after Life of Pablo? I can't remember. Right, uh, right after. It's the same summer. Yeah, it can't, I remember it came or out. Life of Pablo was like spring and, and Coloring Book was summer. Okay, that's right. Because I was a freshman in college when both those came out. And I remember Life of Pablo, we were all like, fuck, do we have to get title to listen to this? Like, that was like a big topic in the dorm. Yeah, like, who yeah. Who has I title? Remember I was sitting at the, uh, I, was, I don't remember why exactly I was in this position, but I was uh, sitting, I watched the, the Madison Square Garden event uh, at a table at the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago, like just kind of sitting there over my laptop, like like this, like just really intent and just watching. I just remember the, like the were, camera like was you were watching like, porn at the library, just like covering. Yeah, your well, screen. it was kind of yeah, kind of basically. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I exactly, exactly. I didn't. I, I exactly, exactly. But um, I don't know. That was uh, Life of Pablo is an interesting, interesting album. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the first half is great, and the second half sucks, kind of. Yeah. Except for No More Parties in L.A., which is a great track and somehow ended up on the second half. But we love that song. We do love that song. That is, yeah, that's our, that's why it's our theme song. Going back to you watching porn at the library real quick, um, <laughs> you, the way, it was great. it's awesome that you wa- did the same position for watching, you know, the Madison Square Garden thing as you did uh, for watching porn. Because it was just like secondary to you, like you didn't even think about it. Like you just shielded the shielded the screen from everyone, from everybody else in the library. Yeah, I think any that's passing cool. vagrant, any passing man, woman, or, or child. I, I, it, yeah, exactly. You're right. You're right. Am I right on that, folks? <laughs> can we get some? Can we get some? You're right chat on that one, so that maybe it's okay that Mason watched porn at the library. I do want to get on record. Uh, never watch porn at the library. I think Noah should stop projecting his shame onto me, his beloved friend and co-host. Uh, but that is a conversation for it's on the therapy, which is our, uh, <laughs> which is our Patreon exclusive, show. Patreon exclusive, where Noah and I sit down with a relationship counselor. And <laughs> it's mostly it's just a it's just a lot of crying and a lot of like barely intelligible things because we're just like so stuffed up. From it's mostly crying. farting. <laughs> It's mostly me being like, can we can we take a five minute break and then me putting the mic right up to my ass and just, just <laughs> farting for five straight minutes, coming back, you guys throwing up into separate buckets, being like, people what spending the hell five dollars a month <laughs> to listen to that too. Every the one guy leaks it, puts it on YouTube, but they still pay the five dollars to get. Yeah, it. yeah. Goddamn. Oh, okay. Well, welcome back to It's on the Farting uh, with Noah and Mason. <laughs> I am the funny talking baby, of course, Noah Marger. <clears throat> back after a little bit of a hiatus. It's good to be yeah. back in the stew. And I'm, oh, as always, joined mm-hmm. by Mason McGuire, the funny talking dog. Mason, what's up, baby? Hello, hello. Yes, sorry for the unannounced hiatus, folks. Uh, if you didn't know, I had quit my job in the beginning of the month. Let's and go, I thought baby. that would mean there would be more time for podcasting. 
But truthfully, I just want a little break. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Wanted I get to it. spend a lot of time getting that No One Chicago special episode together and just kind of. <laughs> Yeah. Decompressing from a year and change's worth of uh, work of very not fun work, but and I you went to Michigan, and I did go to Michigan. I just got back this last uh, Sunday, Saturday, and you know what, brother? You ever feel like sometimes you just need a vacation? You ever feel like you just need a vacation from your vacation sometimes? <laughs> okay, so what we have, what we have here is uh, Mason wearing the worst hat in the entire world. And talking like a big a big guy with a big gun is what he's talking like right now. That's a cute hat, though, I will say. I'm sorry I said it was the worst hat in the whole world. It's cute. Uh, you just said that because you like it so much. Uh, I understand. Uh, no, I'm very happy with this. I bought this in Michigan. If I bought, if, I spend a lot of money on books and records, things I don't have storage space for. But that hat, and I also got a f- nice throw blanket. Um, but I'm Listen, very when you have a hat purchase. that cool, you make room. That's all I'll say. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. Have you? Have you been, buddy? How's your? Uh, how's it going for you? <laughs> well, back in back in old Portland. Portland. Uh, well, I think the last time people heard from me, I was visiting you, and I still had a little yes. bit more of my trip to go. And I left Chicago. I went to St. Louis. I went to Memphis. I went to Nashville. I went to Asheville, North Carolina. I went to Charleston. Mm. In Charleston, I found out what the Delta variant was for the first time. And I was like, okay, haha, very cool. But I'm vaccinated, so who cares? Uh, and then I kept doing my trip, and I got to New Orleans, I think, was my last stop. And then I started seeing more about the Delta variant. And both my parents called me independently and said, hey, maybe you don't want to be in the South right now uh, as this thing is getting crazier. And I said, yeah, you know what? You might be right. So I made the tough decision to end my trip early, come back, uh, and I've just been chilling a little bit. Got my favorite podcast booted back up as well, which you yes. can check out. You can check out yes. this week. The episode came out yes. yesterday, so that's cool. Yes. Listen, look for it on your podcast feeds, folks. And if you don't see it there, push that little subscribe button. Push the subscribe, push the follow button, push anything that'll get that damn show in your freaking ears. But yep. that's basically been it, man. Uh, and then, you know, just, you know, <laughs> I'm going to move back to LA really fucking soon. So just trying to get all that organized as well. Uh, yeah. Trying to get all the details ironed out for that. I'm going to have to hire some movers because I got some big pieces that I'm just not going to be able to get myself. Yeah, so getting that yeah, your ass. Okay, all right. Yep, my ass. I need two guys from Russia who escaped escaped on an Elon Musk jet to lift my ass into my new house. You nailed it. You got it. So, yeah, that's what I've been dealing with. I hope that goes well. Moving is is very stressful and and, and, uh, uh, paring down and getting things in boxes and onto trucks uh, is very stressful. So I hope that goes that goes pretty well. But you got a place lined up, so is that like I got a place lined up. That is sort yeah. of you know one check in a box that is just you know it'd be one thing if it was like oh I got to find a place you know but that's already taken care of and so got the place. It's just the fucking dude unpacking is such a fucking bitch. Can we? Can I get an amen, genius. Mason, for that one? Amen. Thank you, man. Thank you, Amen. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's it. Uh, man, yeah. Should we do the uh, show? Let's do the show. It's uh, yeah. It's about time for us to start doing that show, folks. It's Follow Friday, so make sure to go ahead and give us a follow on all the socials. Get us that cup. We need that cup so bad. <laughs> I just get in the suit window and you're like falling out of frame. <laughs> fucking fucking losing your fucking mind over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um we have a triple decker <laughs> today for the folks though, which is I don't know, maybe maybe you like that, maybe you don't. It's kind of impossible to know. Right. right. But we have maybe it. you're on maybe you're listening to us in the car on the way to Wendy's and you're like, damn, what should I get at Wendy's and you hear triple decker and the choice has been made for you. Uh I kinda like it though. I like it. Is Wendy's a top go-to place for you, even though you've told me the secret of how many times you've been to a very specific Burger King in your life? Is Wendy's... I told the public that. I told the public that as well. Yeah, um, uh, When Wendy's is convenient, I like to go there, but the thing... The weird, like, kind of paradox with Wendy's is I could get to a Wendy's either from my home in the suburbs or my apartment here with little to no, like... Um, it wouldn't take too long if I wanted to walk there. It would justify the trip there and back. And I know I would like it because I like generally like Wendy's. I think they have a tremendous chicken sandwich and their burgers uh, are, are really good. Um, I ne- can never really find the energy to justify a trip over there. So Dude. it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird, it's weird. I don't know. Okay. How do you feel about Wendy's? Uh, they're fine. Uh, so today we're talking about three three different things. Uh, we're talking about a short film. We're talking about an album picked by Mason and another film. Well, both films were picked by me, both the short and the feature. Starting yeah. with the short, as always, this is Calabasas, one twenty six twenty came out quite literally two weeks ago, maybe three by the time this comes out. Hell so yeah. snap, snap, snap for that in the chat. Thanks for getting on top of it. Mm-hmm. We got to get this out. It was directed by Xavier Rotnovsky. Uh, Mason, any experience with Xavier Rotnovsky? Any experience with this movie at all before I said we should cover it? Uh, the People logged it on Letterboxd. I think that was about it. I had no idea who Xavier Rotnovsky was, and I had no idea what this was about. I just remember the poster or the that you see on Letterboxd being very striking, just people look, looking up. And then the title, Calabasas. Oh, yeah, it's like a mosaic of a bunch of different people, like, looking up in the sky, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's it. That's it for me. That's it for you. Uh, I had first heard about Xavier on an episode of, you guessed it, Yeah, But Still. Uh, Mm. He is friends with Brandon Wardell, and I think he was on a premium episode. He's been on two episodes, and I can't remember... I think he's been on two episodes. I can't remember. He was at minimum on one episode. I'm pretty sure it was a premium episode. And he and Jack Wagner, the other host, went to Mm. Denny's in Culver City. And they were like, okay, there's going to be Trump people there. We should go. Mm. This was in 2019. We should go see what's going on there, why they're meeting at this Denny's in Culver City, basically. And it was like a rally, I think, Mike more so. I think it was like they were holding a rally at this Denny's in Culver City and like the institution of Denny's was like not doing anything about it or whatever. And so they like went to this. They got word of it through like some fucked up Facebook group that they were able to like, you know, intervene in. Yeah. And they went and they documented the whole thing and like just unbridled rage and like just just 
such weirdness from these Trump people, just like attacking them. Like, what are you doing here? Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, completely unprompted just because a camera had shown up. And so I was, I checked that out and I was like, wow, this is like pre John Wilson. This is pre, I guess, post Nathan for you, but like pre John Wilson. And so I was like, this is kind of interesting. You know, that's cool that they were like on sort of the beat about this and like went and checked it out and like showed us this very truthful response with very little like veneer of like filmmaking going on. Like it was very direct. Uh, and then they also talked about this guy, Mr. Donald Trump Goya Beans, who makes videos online, and, like, all the videos are about, like, he calls himself Mr. Donald Trump Goya Beans, and they're just oh these boy. very weird, very, like, you're not 100% sure, like, what's going on type situation, but they're very interesting, uh-huh. I think. Uh, and then I saw that he had done some stuff with Truth Point, which was Drill and Derek's adult stream uh, stream that they had, like, did before Adult Swim uh, shut down the streams, and then the dr- the doc just dropped like all of a sudden, and I was like, "Oh shit!" He released another doc. I didn't know what it was about. I just knew people that I follow on Twitter who I you know like to a greater or lesser degree were like, "Got to check out this doc. Very cool stuff. Not what you think it's gonna be, basically." So I was like, "Okay, mm-hmm. I'll check it out." I watched it the day it came out, and I loved it, Mason. Oh. Wow. Wow. Big surprise. I wow. loved it, Mason. It was so funny and cool and scary <laughs> to watch. Uh, yeah. What were your, you know, I guess first impressions of this thing? That it was funny and cool and scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, it is like, I think the best way that I could describe this to someone is first of all, it's not exa- it's not what you think it is at all. It starts out right. very much being one thing and then takes a completely different turn by the end. So you yeah. don't even know what you're getting into. But I guess in like essence, what I would describe it as. Well, read what the read how Xavier describes it on Vimeo, like a, the, the kind of the, the title or the, the thing underneath the title, you know, the description on the video. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. One sec. Because uh, I think that that log line is in, is incredible. A dense fog in the San Fernando Valley cancels a meeting. Can you hear that? Yeah, you probably can. Uh, yeah. Dense fog in the San Fernando Valley cancels a meeting of UFO hunters and causes an unexpected tragedy in the nearby mountains. Mm-hmm. It is the a very difficult thing, I think, to capture, and I think they do it very well in this, how people just make things that aren't about them about them. And it's like... Yes. Yes. horrifyingly fascinating to watch, would you say? I would agree with that. I think it's notable that, because uh, I, I never heard of this Xavier Rotnowski before, and you were describing the earlier documentary he had made. It's It seems to me like it's he's very concerned with how people, what people do when they see a cameras on them. Sure. Or how people react and, um, and have different... Uh, uh, people's different relationships rather to the camera. Um, and then there's all, and I thought that idea was very interesting and uh, something I hadn't seen expressed before, but just like kind of it, it is my sort of the thing that I'm taking away from it afterwards is just the, I guess how confusing like a tragedy can be. And, you know, we're coming out of, 
pre you're coming out of a couple different like kind of waves with just this thing called COVID-19 yeah. <laughs> and it feels like um you know that was a what this movie's what this short centers around was the what I don't not to give anything away too much but what the short cuz I don't want to spoil the, sure. the the surprise um but it was captured at the beginning of a of tragic event that happened at the very beginning of a, of an what became a very tragic year. Yes, and it's just kind of this really interesting capsule of how people react to something. So that's that shocking and that like kind and that shared on that particular level, um, and how there's always going to be like nightcrawler kind of vulture motherfuckers yeah. like that paparazzi guy. <laughs> Dude, um, he's my favorite like character so to speak in the documentary he is i'm about to go back to la i lived in la for you know over half almost you know a full year before covid happened uh there are so many fucking people in la like him there's so many fucking people in la like him yeah just they you know that they're like trying to fleece you every second that they're talking to you they don't yeah. care about you they're only interested in themselves and it like is like you can like feel the disgust and they're always trying to be actors <laughs> yes and it's like it doesn't matter what they do he like says that he's like well i'm kind of a paparazzi guy but you know they call me and i take photos of them and then he's like right. but what i really want to do is <laughs> what i really want to do is take photos on set and then later in the doc he's like well i'm an actor too you know like well of course yeah. i'm an actor and it's like no dude you're just want to be famous like that's what you want yeah you know yeah that's an, yeah, yeah. I think that this documentary is also kind of about how people want to be famous. Like, there's that that Barbie lady, um, the Calabasas Barbie, or whatever. She is also infuriatingly unreal. frustrating to watch because she's standing she's, there in front of yeah. you know news copters and news stations or whatever, and she's saying like, you know, what a horrible tragedy this is. You know, people in like these different little communities, Agora Hills, Calabasas, Thousand Oaks, come together. It's very tight knit. By the way, I'm known for being a human Barbie and living in a dollhouse, but today's not about me, you know? Today's not about, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it is, but I also think that this movie, like, showcases, like, uh, or captures, like, kind of moments of, like, real human, like, moments of, it would be, I think I would be frustrated with this movie if it was just about, like, these kind of people that, like, are, act like vultures around tragedy like this, because there are these, there's, it's really striking sequence at the end where there's like you see people crying and there's that woman praying and having this like really deeply intense prayer. Um, and man, the very end of this movie, there's that kind of uncut gems ending. Yeah. The ending is really surprising, but effective. Like it doesn't feel like, why did they do that? It feels very earned. I feel. Yeah, exactly. It's so, uh, it's so cool. Like this, this kind of kaleidoscope thing, um, no, I was really, I uh, was really happy that you shared this at the at the end of it because um, it's really cool. That's all I got to say about it. I think it's cool. We'll link to it in the show here. Uh, it's eleven minutes long, so you have time to to watch it in your day here. So I definitely think that it's uh, worth a worth a worth a watch. I'm gonna recommend this one. I'm gonna recommend this one. Do you have a Mercedes valuable player? Yes, and it is that ending uh, sequence uh, yeah. that I described. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, it's uh, wrapped it all wrapped everything up very very nicely. 
I have a co Mercedes Bible player. Oh no, whatcha, whatcha, pop, pop, pop. Uh, <laughs> all I want to do is give a Mercedes Bible player <laughs> whatever the fuck she says. Uh, Got to give it to Xavier Ratnovsky uh, for one of them. Uh, the yeah. just the, for if if anything, multiple reasons why, but if anything, just for being like, we were originally going to make a movie about UFO summoning. Yeah. That does not happen. It's so easy to say, let's not go, like, finish what we... St-. Like, it's so easy to just, like, give up in that moment. And, you know, be like, right. we're not going to go out to Calabasas anymore. But they did. Right. And because they did, they get an amazing short film out of it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Xavier Rotnowski definitely gets one of my co-Mercedes Valuable players. But on the flip side, the three credited composers uh, of this, I think the music is yeah. huge in this. Those three com- uh, credited composers are William Basinski, Hiroshi. I think they license some of that music. William Basinski, that's a, a previously, the William Basinski piece has at least been released previously, but it, I think they may be licensed all of the, in any case, the music in this is incredible and he uses it I, really well. I think you're right. I think that the first two names I'm going to read are licensed piece of music, but I think the last one might yeah, be like an original. Yeah, the piece that goes over the end. I think so. It's William Basinski, yeah. Hiroshi Yoshimura, and Anna Vaughn Housewolf, I believe is how you say that, uh, gotcha. are the three credited composers. So shout out to them. Music works really well. I actually think it's kind of the kind of the reason why this isn't like like revolting to watch at a certain level. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. a very like gross subject matter, not in like actual body horror terms, but just in terms of like depraved humanity. Yeah, just like what it reveals, like what you're witnessing. Uh yeah, the the music I think really has this like kind of uh very elegiac like kind of huh? Yeah, hypnotic and kind of elegiac so that you're always reminded that there's a like there's like a, a tragedy or there's mourning happening, you know, so it's not just um it's 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 incorporated in the movie really really well, is all I'm trying to say. That's a great choice. Thank you, Chef. And I'm going to give this a full recommend. Truthfully, I'm going to give this a full recommend. And I would honestly check out his other stuff. Check out the Denny's doc. He had a short film that he made called Wipe, which is really funny. Uh, check out his other stuff. Check out his Vimeo, you know, Google his name, go to his website. Really, really talented filmmaker, truthfully, I think. Hell so yeah. uh, I would say full recommend not only on this, but just on his other work as well. Uh, it's worth a shot. You know, it's, it's short form content. You don't have to devote 90 minutes to this stuff if that is, right. like, a deterrent for you. So, huge full recommend uh, for Calabasas 126.20, as well as his other work. That is it. What's next, Mason? What's next is my album choice this week. What the my hell? Choice. What the hell? And my album choice this week is Eugene McDaniel's Outlaw from 1970. Snap, 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 snap. So, Noah. What? Had you heard of this album before? I asked this you is, to listen to it for this podcast. Uh, this is brand new to me. Eugene McDaniels is brand new to me. Never heard... Well, that's not true. I guess I had heard you... We have a group chat going with our friend and past guest of this show, Thomas Serdarian. And sometimes Thomas will come in and say, you know, I need... You know, give me a wreck for an album that I haven't heard. And he'll want a response in like five fucking seconds, you know? Yep. Uh, and Mason... You know, because he's addicted to his phone, will be on his on his messenger and be like this, and I'll be like, "Fuck, 
I didn't get I didn't get you know there in time. Gotta and be I'll quicker have, on the draw there, cowpoke. Oh yeah, you gotta brand me with an iron if you want me to move that fast. <laughs> So, uh, I didn't get my album recommendation in before Mason did. Mason got his in before I did, so Thomas listened to it. And that was the first time I'd ever heard Eugene McDaniels or Outlaw in my life. So, technically, I had heard of the album before you picked it for the show. Right. But I had never heard the album or heard Eugene McDaniels before yeah. I listened to it for this episode. Mason, what the hell is your history with this, you damn son of a bitch? <laughs> so this whole this album is this album is relatively new to me. I heard it in full for the first time in July of this year, and I found it because I was sifting through an old Spotify playlist, just like hitting shuffle and kind of going about my business, and the song Sagittarius Red came on, and it just kind of hit me like um, a blast of cool water. Like I just kind of like. I was like, oh, man, like, what's this? This is, sounds really cool. I've never heard the song before. And then I listened to the full, the album in full after finishing that song. And it, uh, I was just completely taken away. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess. So, to start, what'd you think of this album, buddy? Okay. So, this is an example of an album that I respect, but don't enjoy listening to. I respect the, like, mission or the content of what is being said, you know, as far as it politically and socially is concerned. But I did not, (laughs) I did not like listening to this album. Uh, And I think it was mostly to do with the fact that it feels like the mixing of genre doesn't work for me in this. Like, I don't like the fact mm -hmm. that it sort of feels like jazz, but also sort of feels like rock, but also sort of feels like country at times. Like, it feels very uneven to me in a way that is just not appealing to my my ears. So, that's my, like, short summation why it didn't work for me. But I don't want to shit on the album really too much, you know, to be honest with you. There were two songs that I did somewhat enjoy one more than the other one of them actually was Sagittarius Moon I think that's one of the highlights Sagittarius of the Red. album Sagittarius Red excuse me Sagittarius Red I think that is one of the highlights of the album and then for me the other highlight is the second to last track Reverend Lee because that one feels the most like a jam band song um, so that's kind of where I'm at with this one uh, again respect what it's tr- what it's doing as far as content is concerned and socially what it's trying to you know get across doesn't really doesn't really work for me though as far as like enjoyment is concerned. So that's where I'm at. Interesting. Interesting. Were you surprised by that? No. Um I don't know. I kind of wanted to roll the dice. I thought that you could get maybe something a little more out of it. I was surprised that the um that the the kind of genre mixing didn't work for you cuz that's one of my favorite things about the album and I actually think that it's handled pretty like gracefully and pretty like kind of surprising and I've listened to this album probably uh, like over half a dozen times probably between like six and ten times since I heard it for the first time last month and each time I re-listen to it I just am taken by how effort like I you said uh jazz rock and country were the kind of three 
mode like uh, uh, genres that you hear it here. I hear more of like kind of a funk soul country with a little dash of psychedelia, like a little dash of, of psych psych in there. Um, nothing too crazy, but I actually think that Eugene McDaniel's has is able to like his songwriting, the lyrics I think are just so pointed and direct and also really, really funny at times. And I think that the music, the way that it kind of, I think the music and the band always find a way to, um, drive it in a direction you're not expecting, at least for me. Um, I, and I really liked just kind of laying back and surrendering and being like, okay, I don't know what this album is quite trying, where this album is quite trying to bring me, but I just am way along on the ride. Um, and I, all to say, does not particularly surprise me that this is not something that really spoke to you. Um, did you I don't know, all, but I like, I, did you at all mm-hmm. ever listen to his stuff? Like when he was like a like a R and B soul singer, I did. I listened to I, in preparation for this episode. I did, um, and it's. I think is I like his voice too. Um, but the other thing that I listened to was his other his other big song as a songwriter uh, compared to what, uh, and the which version, is a Roberta Flack song, right? Uh, she did a version of it, but um, the one that I'm thinking of is um, look it up here. Uh, less by Les McCann uh, okay. and Eddie Thomas, Eddie Harris rather, um, and that is an, from an earlier. It's an earlier song, but it's also about like. This is one of the earliest albums I've heard that is like this direct, um, politically, and it's about a very specific time in America, which is the late 60s through the early 70s so when um you know uh the end of that turbulent decade which we all love hearing about the 1960s and then this like tie this like conservative like kind of law and order time and i love and um don't hear a lot of music from around that time that's this direct politically which is what i was trying to say uh particularly the song silent majority um, there's a lot of, I think, mm, nestled fury in this album. That is, um, it's the earliest I can, I can, I can think of, of something sounding like that and having that kind of energy to it. And I just think it's, it's notable and it's cool. And I think the songs are really, really good. See, I, I just feel, I just feel opposite. I feel that the lyrics are almost too direct to be like, I don't know like a song at a certain level like if you're using it for protest like that's one thing you know like I get that but yeah. it just doesn't it just doesn't hit for me as far as like just like a song like what do you for want what it's worth song, though? I don't know I just don't think it sounds good at the end of the day like something like I'm trying to think I, it's hard to think of a protest song at the off top of my head but like for what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield or something like that you know that to me is like enjoyable enough. But how do you feel about something like like what's going on by Marvin Gaye or I mean that's fine. You know. I don't like flock to that, but it's like it sounds better to me and maybe it's the fact that I think Marvin Gaye is a better singer than Eugene McDaniels is, maybe it's just mm-hmm. the beat or whatever's going on and it's not as much of a 
cluster, you know, as far as genre is concerned. But it just doesn't hit for me in the same way. And I respect okay. what it's doing. You know, I, res- I don't think that this is like, you know, bad all around. I just don't enjoy listening to it. You know, I respect what it's mm-hmm. doing, though, as far as the political and social stuff. And I will say, on Spotify, if you listen to this, it says it came out in 2005. And I just thought that until I, like, really started doing some, like, research on it. But, and I, and I thought to myself, like, damn, the most impressive thing about this album to me is that it came out in 2005 and they made it sound like it was from 1968. Like, I thought that, like, right. when I was listening to it in the car. Yeah. And then you look it up and it's actually came out in 1970 and you're like, oh, no shit, of course. That's it, 100% the era in which this is coming out. And, you know, 1968 rivals 2020 as far as being, like, the most tumultuous year, you know, in, like, the last, like, yeah, yeah. 100, you know, 150 years. So, yeah, I don't know. You don't Again. even like you don't even like cherry stones. I was kind of surprised you didn't like cherry stones. Does I don't know. You know, I just like it's like this. It just it was one of those albums where I was like, I'm listening to it for the show, not really feeling it. You know, I don't know. It just like I I just feel very like not like super passionate about it in a, in a way that I'm like. Okay, I don't really care for this, and I don't really have a lot to say about it other than it didn't work for me. Like, that's just where I'm at with it, unfortunately. Man, okay. I don't know. I think that this is um, an album that, like, if you're... Um, it, it kind of feels like a, a little bit like Buried Treasure was, like, the kind of the feeling I got when I discovered this. Or when it, you know, came via however it came by me. Um, Cattle prod in the ass because you're a cowboy on sure, the ranch. Sure, 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 sure. Um... I don't know. I think it's like 1970 is a very, very, very strange year. And the seventies were a very, very, very strange decade. And, um, I definitely think that this is an album that is kind of at the nexus of, uh, the kind of polit, like, you know, just the the politics and culture going into the 70s and coming out of the sixties but I also just think that the the song craft here is just really tremendous. I, I really think that um, just from the beginning, the title track, this very like kind of uh, aggressive song about a liberated woman. I just love the line. She sleeps in the nude. She sleeps with a man like that. Just the, the tricking you out of the rhyme there makes me giggle. Um, I also think that it's just, man, I don't you know. Like, you like it because because he says she don't wear a bra. That's why you like it because he's no, talking about no, her not no, wearing no, no, no. But I, Cherry Stones is the big. Uh, it's kind of surprising that I was looking it up and it it seems like it showed up on like a Claro playlist on Apple Music and it had like a million streams on Spotify. I don't know why that's the most popular one on this album. Um, but I don't know. I think he's a good songwriter, and I think that you know what I look for in a song or, or from a songwriter is just to either uh, to make me feel like I'm living in another world in some capacity for like 45 minutes roughly um and this was like this film feels very like kind of late 60s early 70s to me in a very like kind of illustrative way and I just think that that's um I think it's I think it's cool I think that I really really like it got some fast facts for you Mason alrighty let's do it Eugene Booker McDaniels American singer-songwriter, had his greatest recording success in the early 60s and had continued success as a songwriter with songs including Compared to What and Roberta Flack's Feel Like Making Love. Okay, that was the Roberta Flack song that he wrote. 
Right. Uh, after forming a singing group, the Echoes of Joy, later known as the Sultans in his teens, he studied at the University of Omaha Conservatory of Music before joining the Mississippi Piney Wood Singers, with whom he toured in California. After recording two unsuccessful singles and an album, McDaniels teamed with producer Snuff Garrett. <laughs> I love that name. That is a fucking yep. tip-top name. Uh, with whom he recorded his first hit, 100 Pounds of Clay. That's I like that song a lot, but it's nothing like uh, what yeah, is on yeah. Outlaw. It is like a Smokey Robinson-esque R&B song. Like, truly, just like worlds different from what Outlaw is. Uh, that reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1961, sold over a million copies, gold disc status. We love to hear it. Followed up, a tear was a less successful, but third uh, was a less successful but third single with Garrett. Tower of Strength, co-written by Burt Bacharach, reached number five and won McDaniel's his second gold record. After the late 60s, McDaniel's turned his attention to a more black consciousness form and was best known for the song. Uh, in the genre, it was compared to what? A jazz soul protest song made famous by Les McCann and Eddie Harris, like you said, Mason. Uh, he returned to the U.S. in 1971 and recorded thereafter as Gene McDaniels instead of Gene McDaniels, which he was known as before. McDaniels also attained the top spot on the chart as a songwriter. Number one hit with Feel Like Making Love by Roberta Flack, which received a Grammy nomination. McDaniels also received a BMI award. Uh, for outstanding radio airplay. At the time of the award, the song had already over 5 million plays. That is pretty fucking crazy. Uh, he was the original voice actor for Nasus, a character in League of Legends. Did you see that? Uh, I didn't see that. That's interesting, though. That's so random. I've never played League yeah. of Legends, but I have like friends who are into that. That's so fucking random that he, of all people is doing voiceover work for a computer game. Like, that's just so yeah. crazy to me. Uh, Lee, legend has it that he administ uh, the administration was so offended by the lyrics in Silent Majority that either Spiro Agnew or Nixon's chief of staff personally called Atlantic, asking them to stop working with McDaniel. So, there you go. That's about all. <laughs> that's what you need to know as far that's, as that is concerned. That's cool as hell. That's yeah, really it is cool. cool. Uh, and then in the liner notes of the album, Last Fast Fact, there is a note that reads, quote, under conditions of national emergency like now, there are only two kinds of people, those who work for freedom and those who do not, the good guys versus the bad guys, and that is attributed to McD, who I have to imagine is Eugene McDaniels. That's it. Yeah, wonder wonder what's up with that. Yeah, uh, wonder who. That's facts. like a, it's a Mick, it's a McLovin situation. We don't we don't really know what his listen, real name is, listen, but it's McD. If you here's I guess I didn't see that Spiro Agnew thing or that Nixon administration thing, but if I guess it will be kind of the best. That's almost the best endorsement this album could could get is that it pissed off the vice president so much that he tried to get it stopped. And if you want to give a posthumous fuck you to Richard Nixon and a posthumous fuck you to Spiro Agnew. Uh, stream Outlaw by Eugene McDaniels. <laughs> My Mercedes Valuable Player um, is the song Silent Majority, um, just because I love a song that is directly at, um, and so angry and furious at, and directed at the sort of false, um, uh, the sort of false, like, kind of uh, uh, oppression and, and um, the kind of entitlement that... Um, uh, middle class America felt coming out of the sixties and how they had to fix it. Basically. I think it's, I just think it's tremendous. Um, and you know what? I don't even, I don't give a shit. I'm going to full recommend this one. I love this album wow. so much. 
Yeah, I really do. I really do. I think that I'm going to full recommend it. I'm going to really put my stamp on it. I'm going to give this also. I'm going to piss you off. I'm going to give this one a catfish also. I really I think that sucks. I think this. that fucking sucks. I think that that is that is literally just to make me mad, and that is fucked up that you would do that. Uh, Mercedes Valuable Player for me goes to Reverend Lee, the second to last track on the album. Again, not just I'm just not into this one. Uh, so I didn't have a lot to go off as far as the Mercedes Valuable Player is concerned. But Reverend Lee to me feels the most like a jam song. I think that there's a lot of cool instrumentation going on there as far as the album is concerned. So I'll give it to that. This gets a do not recommend for me. Uh, I just didn't enjoy listening to it at the end of the day. That's what it comes down to. That's it. <laughs> Actually, we have one more thing to talk about. That's not really it. Uh, Mason. Last thing. Last thing. Movie. You excited? Noe's movie choice. Movie. Noe's movie. Noe's movie. Uh, movie. 1995. Living in Oblivion. Directed by Tom DeSillo. Mason, what do you know about this movie beforehand? Anything? Uh, I just saw the. I just saw a couple minute. I just saw uh, a little bit of the first segment on Pluto TV one day, uh, and I flipped to something else because I was just channel surfing. That's it. I think I'd seen maybe a picture of it was like in a film textbook or something or a reference somewhere, but didn't wasn't really familiar with it before seeing it on Pluto TV. Ringing endorsement of Pluto TV. Love Pluto TV, honestly. I, it's cool. That's an official position of the show. That's Pluto TV and Tubi. The those are the official streaming platforms. I don't, I don't like Tubi. It's on the list. (laughs) Tubi's weird to me. Like I'm like, all right, come on. What you mean? You're not your ideal streaming platform isn't just filled with stuff that you would have been able to get for two bucks at the used bookstore. My ideal streaming platform You're not is trying to watch Cradle to the Grave. <laughs> My ideal streaming platform is turning something on and immediately it knowing what I want. And Tubi's like the opposite of that. It's like fucking just like the biggest bullshit. And then there's like a couple cool things like here and there, you know. So, uh, Mason, you want to know my history with this movie? I do. Let's do it. This I wasn't using Letterbox at the time. I think that this was the first movie I ever watched at film school. Interesting. Quite an uh, auspicious start. What an auspicious start for this young man over here. Uh, I was in my dorm. I think it was the weekend. I wasn't doing jacking anything. Off. I was jacking off into my own mouth, uh, playing a game that I'm <laughs> playing a game with myself. I said, how many cummies can I eat today? <laughs> it was so fun for me. It's kind of, if you do that against, if you sit up against the wall, it, it definitely is. Pro, it's probably a good back exercise. So I'm happy that you uh, were taking care of yourself. Yeah, you know, you got, you know, when you got, you got to have healthy habits <laughs> in college. Well, that includes eating your own cum uh, on the weekend when you are not wanting to hang out with anyone. Uh, I hated my freshman year of college so much, uh, especially the first semester. I wasn't doing anything. This was very early on. This was probably the second or third weekend of college. Uh, mm-hmm. And at Chapman University, shout out, just kidding. Uh, at Chapman University, there were two media libraries, so to speak, that you had access to if you were in the film school. There was the Dodge Media Library, which was inside Dodge. It was very, it was like hidden in plain sight, kind of, because you walked into the mm-hmm. building and there was a 
<clears throat> big staircase that led you to the second floor. <clears throat> there was a structure where there was like a front desk that no one ever sat at, but it was there for some reason. And then behind this big structure, inside the foyer to the auditorium was the Dodge Media Library. You turn right mm. to go into the to the auditorium. You turn left. It's actually a shorter walk into the Dodge Media Library than it is into the auditorium. But it was. I don't think most people knew that it existed. I think I saw like three people. So it was there living recently. in oblivion there, or well, it wasn't there. It was in the Leatherby Libraries. The Leatherby Libraries were the like main library that everyone used. Okay. Like all Chapman students had access to, which also had a great selection of movies. And I remember when I was staying the summers in Orange, which was every summer after my freshman year, more or less, I would go there all the time, at least once Shout a week. Shout out to your libraries, either your campus libraries, your local libraries. I'm loving the library. Let's, let's, that's the official position of this podcast. Taking a lot of stands here, making I, it for lost time. I fucking hate the library. <laughs> Fuck the library. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, no, but I would just go there all the time. So many great things. Truly the thing, like top three thing I miss about going to that college specifically was having access to yeah both of those libraries and like the dodge media library had weird hours it was open from like 10 to 2 and then like 4 to 7 and Ah, then then it would and for like three days out of the week so the 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 leatherby library was like much more of like a, a like a sure bet um but i got living in oblivion at the leatherby libraries checked it out set up my library account there with the nice people who worked there Took it back to my dorm room, put it in. You ready for this? Had a laptop that didn't Mm. have a disk drive, so I had an external disk drive that was USB that attached attached to USB, whatever the opposite of USB-C is. Is it USB-A? Is that what we call that? I don't know, but I know what you're talking about. It's like it's your thicker USB cord, and you use it to plug into like your your external drives, like you said, like your external hard drives, your external disk drives, things like that. Mason just throwing all of his external drives at the Zoom call to show me what he's talking about, uh, and then so throw I, my own shit too. And I'm like, ooh, you should eat some of that little game with yourself, <laughs> your version of the game. Uh, <laughs> what if that was what the game starring Michael Michael Douglas was about? It was just guys throwing shit at Michael Douglas and him trying to catch in his mouth. Um, uh, it would probably be a better movie. Not that I dislike that movie, but it would probably be a better movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why Fincher didn't roll with that. Uh, but I took this movie back to my dorm room, plopped some headphones on, and early college was where I realized just how much I don't like watching stuff on my laptop. Like, I think after the first semester, and I was, like, trying to watch movies regularly on my laptop, I was just like, this sucks. Like, I don't like watching stuff on my laptop. It feels weird. I just feel like I need to be watching it on, like, a TV. Like, it just is more enjoyable Mm. for me that way. So, not a lot of history with that. And if I do, it's like, fuck, I wish I was doing something else. But watched it then, was like, oh, is this what filmmaking is? You know, kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, is this what I'm in for at film school? Um, and I remember really enjoying it at the time, um, Mason. But did you have a did you have a little Columbia College Chicago library situation? What was the library like at Columbia? We did. I I don't recall really. I got books out there for projects and stuff. Our library was kind of small um, and sandwiched on a couple floors at the, I think the six twenty on State Street on uh, the State Street building, um, where it was like a couple. Well, I don't, I don't know. It would be it was a couple floors. 
Um, I think the first or the fifth floor, so maybe it was quite big. I don't know. But in any case, uh, the rest of the building was like classrooms. It wasn't its own dedicated. Um, it was just a floor in a bigger building? It was like five floors in a bigger building. Oh, gotcha. I don't remember really getting discs out from there, um, just because that was heavy in my uh, illegal downloading days, allegedly. Um, allegedly, so I, you were kind of a pirate, right? A little bit of a pirate sailing the seven seas. Yo ho ho, or just like getting uh, cheap Blu-rays and DVDs from like Reckless Records or something, you know, like just like going, kind of going like media hunting instead of sure getting stuff out of the library for free. That was also like for me, I guess, like that was also when Netflix and Hulu was were a little more direct, and you could get like Criterion Collection movies on Hulu. Sure, Actually, friend, right. The friend of the show, Sonny Dion Jr., was very helpful with a a plug for that uh, back in the day. Um, that was like and, around that time, like 2015, I feel like mid 2016, that's when streaming got like really good. I feel like, yeah. Cause there was a weird period. I feel like from stranger like, thing was kind of the, uh, the peak of all that stuff. You know, I feel like after stranger things, the first season, everything kind of started to splinter and get bad. Well, it just, I just mean like streaming used to like kind of suck to do. Like it was like hard to like get stuff to buffer like it was just slow and clunky right. yeah and i feel like 2016 is where it got like really accessible and really good and people started yeah. investing a lot into it because i remember like watching the first season of better call saul and wanting to keep up with better call saul yeah. when i went to college and just being mm. like how do i do this how do i find the second season of better call saul and now that seems so like Jurassic almost to be like, well, it's easy. You buy it on Amazon or it's on Netflix, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Different times. Um, but to, I guess to answer your question, that wasn't, that was usually how I was watching movies back in college. So you had not seen it since your freshman year of college then? I hadn't seen it since my freshman year of college. And looking back, it's like, I wasn't watching it on a TV. I was watching it on the computer. I probably had Facebook open or like, you know, other shit, you know, at the time. Yeah. So it probably wasn't the best, like, first watch. It probably wasn't the, like, most. Which know, is how most people were watching, con- was watching content back then. I certainly was doing it that way. With Facebook open in one tab, getting into a fucking paragraph long flame war with a stranger on some Facebook. Yeah. Group. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you were probably getting into Flame Wars with, like... <laughs> yeah, and I still am to this day. Yeah, you are. You still are to this day, and it's disgusting, and people wish you would stop. Uh, yeah. So, I truly picked this because, A, I knew that, like, it's not the most watched movie about filmmaking of all time, and that's, like, mm. its own little subgenre. Uh, and, B, I wanted to see how it would hold up. Okay. I think it's pretty good. It's pretty good! It's not as yeah. good as I remember, but it's pretty good. It's a fun, I, I watched it this morning. It's a fun, like, kind of matinee, like, early afternoon movie, you know? Um, what does that What does uh, that mean? It's a fun afternoon movie. Uh, just, like, a movie that you, like, this kind of feels, um, like, mm, it's a movie that, um... Well, this is what I want to watch. I want to just see uh, a movie of like with like kind of characters or archetypes interacting. Something that's like kind of broad, you know. Sure. And this is a fairly broad movie, and it really, um, it's a fairly broad movie, and it's also like this pretty. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty good 
as I understand, a pretty good document of like that era of independent filmmaking and the kind of the tr- kind of troubles with that. Um, I just thought it was fun. It's just, I guess, at the end of the day, an afternoon movie, something I is something I watch that's that's fun. Basically, how did you how did you feel about it this time? So I remember thinking it was like really good when I first watched it back in 2015. Yeah, uh, and being like, oh, this is like, this is like what filmmaking is. You know, this is like what people you know suffer through to like make their movie or whatever. Yeah, uh, with life experience, you know, and having worked on various projects of various size, whether they be student films, music videos, reality TV, you know, whatever, you mm. know, feature films, whatever. Yeah, there's always challenges to every single thing that you make. That is literally what filmmaking is. You know, at the end of the yeah. day, it's just a series of challenges. I feel like that's what art is ultimately at the end of the day, especially if it's a collaborative art. Uh, but this is still pretty good. Yeah, I. Uh oh. Um. I think you man, zoomed, I Mason. I got away from me. Just, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah, you zoomed really hard for me, though. Oh darn it! Sorry. Um, I heard everything that you said. Okay. I'm just trying to remember. Um. Well, all all of what I was really getting at really was at the point where it's like, yeah, at every single level, this is like true i feel like like i yeah. think that like what I, yeah i guess right so you you picked this movie and i was a little uh i guess i was a little f- fearful like knowing just at least the concept of this movie that it was going to be kind of non-stop what the first section of the movie is um just like kind of non-stop just filmmaking is is anxiety because like you i've i've worked on a decent amount of sets um and it was I I was pretty uh, enthused that the the conclusion that this movie gets to is like everyone's stressed out on a movie set all the time, but you do manage to have like the reason why you do it is for that moment when it all just kind of clicks totally and everyone's on the same page. And I like that that had a, a love and appreciation for the industry and for, for making a movie, but was also pretty, um, uh, honest, I guess, through exaggeration about how stressful it is to be <laughs> making something, especially with other people. Yeah, I think that the collaborative nature of filmmaking, I don't want to say it's unique to that art. You know, I think that there are some arts that are like, you know, one person goes away and paints something, you know, and there's not yeah. usually a team of people working on that painting. It's usually just one person painting that picture most of the time. With filmmaking, it's like the antithesis of that. There are so many things happening at one time. There's someone recording sound. There's someone pulling focus. There's an AD trying to get things together. There's actors, usually more than one, you know, on camera. There's a craft service person. You know, there's so many people doing different jobs, but they're all, in theory, doing it in service of the thing that they're making, you know? And it's when... Ego and personality, you know, take a front step, I think, or take a like a forward step on that, that at times things can get a little muddy. And there's just so much truth, I feel, in terms of how different jobs relate to other jobs and different people within different departments, how they communicate. Because 
you know. Yeah. I don't know. It, I just found it to be very truthful the way people communicate. And honestly, a lot of the time people can be shitty on set. You know, people can be very stressed. Yeah, people, it's just take like that it's, out. It, 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 the thing that's 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 useful to remember is that like working a film set is the same as just it's that's just a job, and there are shitty people on a set as there are shitty people in an in an office. It's just kind of what they're trying to do at the end of their day, and who you're interacting with is different than someone you're going to meet like in an insurance adjuster's office or, or, or something like that. And I think that this movie highlights that very, very well. And it doesn't have, um, like, you get to know the characters. And most of the characters in the movie are just, like, named for their role. So you got the gaffer, you got the uh, the grip, you got the focus puller. Played by, um, what's his name? Oh, shoot. Kevin Corrigan? Plays the fo- Kevin Corrigan, thank you. Uh, it was a, such a delight to see him uh, pop up in this. He's great. But, um, he's awesome. Uh, the whole cast is awesome, which we'll get into later. But I th- love that this movie um, doesn't uh, – it, it just treats this like kind of like a, a workplace kind of comedy. Uh, it's just like what they're trying to do at the end of the day is make something that's important, make art. And what, another thing I love – this is a small thing that I like about this movie – whatever the film that they're making is, I think it's also titled Living in Oblivion, whatever they're making – it appears to be something completely different in each section of this movie, which I love. I love that you don't have any idea what this movie's actually about. And I feel like that's just like, it's not like a like a harsh stab at 90s independent filmmaking, but it is like a little bit of like a, this is like the kind of thing that maybe 90s yeah. independent cinema is, is it's like, does it make sense? Is it really any good? Who cares? Like at the end of the day, it's yeah. independent cinema. You know, it's, it's rule breaking. Um, right. But you mentioned the cast. Cast is really good in this movie. Steve Buscemi is sort of our main guy. He's the director. Catherine Keener plays the female protagonist of the film. Mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage's first movie, and he's really good yeah. in this. I mean, he's a great actor, but like, he basically, you know, gets to be like, fuck the film industry for treating people with dwarfism like shit, which is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, it is really cool. It's awesome to see him. Uh, you got James Legro as the um, egotistical and very very uh arrogant lead actor you got dermot mulrooney as the um the one idp uh, he's the funniest great. character in the movie to me i think dermot mulrooney's character really because i think oh because i think james legros character um was the guy that was really 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 funny to me just how um that guy is just one <laughs> You don't realize that uh, one like kind of uh, uh, a small small request after another until he's basically like taking control of the <laughs> basically directing for the director. It's so funny. It's so funny. Um, that scene in the car before they get to set yeah. in the second section where he's like really buttering, <laughs> really buttering yeah, really the gassing up. him up. Yeah, yeah. It's so just like you just that, again. It's like the guy in. In Calabasas one twenty six twenty, you know the the guy who's like, you guys seem real top notch. Like I really like what you guys are doing. Yeah, he has no yeah. fucking reason to be saying that. He's just being such like a slimy prick. Like so yeah. good. Um, there's a little so fun good. fast fact about him coming up in the fast fact section. Ooh, uh, can't wait. But yeah, this this movie is it's not as good as I remember. To be totally honest with you, the characters mm. aren't like you know the most complex deep characters ever portrayed on screen but i think for what the movie what i believe the movie's goal to be is which is to give a truthful depiction of filmmaking at an independent level 
I think it succeeds. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Fun movie. Thank you, Chef. Hey. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you for agreeing with me. Uh, a couple lines. I cannot remember the one that uh, Kevin Corrigan says to the Cora character, but it's like this woman cannot remember her line in the first section, this mm. older actress, and Kevin Corrigan like repeats the line back to her in like a shitty, smarmy way. And I was like, yes, bro, yeah. that is funny. Fuck her up. Yeah. And then I think, I think the funniest actual written line in the movie is... Catherine Keener says to Steve Buscemi, I feel like an asshole. And Steve Buscemi says, you're just saying that because you have preparation H on your face. <laughs> yes. That's just like funny. That is like line. an actually funny line. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so just, good. I love, I, they have such like fun, they have such funny chemistry in this movie. I love it. Um, I love both of them. It's funny. Uh, the private conversation between the DP, Wolf, and the director, Nick, when he's mm. like, fu- like in the third section, and the third section, I feel like what you're saying is sort of where the movie like, like earns its cred, so to speak. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, filmmaking is hard. Yes, like you know, you've established that. But the like mm. last like turn in this movie is, I hate you. Well, I hate you. You're being an asshole. You're being an asshole. Oh, but like actually, you're doing a great job. And he's like, really? You think right. I'm doing a great job? And he's like, yeah. And like, oh, thanks for saying that. I think you're doing a great job. It's like what you're saying, Mason. Like at the end of the day, like hopefully you're there because you want to make the movie and do the best job you can. You know what I mean? You're not yeah. there for your own, you know, ego or whatever. Even though it's inevitable that that's going to pop up, you're there because you want to yeah. make the thing. You know, that's the goal yeah. ultimately. Um, any other little fu- any other little fun comments? Any other little fun comments? Um, no, no. Can I give you some fast facts? Give me some fast facts. DeSillo got inspiration from this film, from the frustrations he experienced when making his first movie, Johnny Swade, and his long struggle to make his next intended film, Box of Moonlight. Living in Oblivion was rejected by all producers, but the actors and friends of the director felt so strongly that they financed it themselves. Two producers... Michael Griffiths and Hilary Guilford were given parts in the movie thanks to a thank them for providing finance. Griffiths plays Speedo, the sound mixer. Shout out to Speedo. Shout uh, out to Speedo. And Guilford plays the unnamed script girl, who I don't think we see a lot of in the movie, but she's like there, right? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. has a couple lines. She has a really funny, um, man, the love triangle that uh, her character, the first AD, and Catherine Keener have in that second section. Pretty fun little little plot. Yes, chef. You're right. Uh, the idea that writer director, uh, the idea that writer director Tom DeSillo modeled the buffoonish Chad Palomino on Brad Pitt after working with him on Johnny Swade is a myth. Pitt himself was slated to appear as the Palomino character until a scheduling conflict yeah. with Legends of the Fall forced him to drop out and be replaced by is it Legro Legros? How are we saying that? I think it's Legro. I think it's James Legro. I think it is too. But replaced by Legro. Apparently, Legro was mocking a self-absorbed Hollywood star, but it wasn't Pitt. DeSillo said that while he can't name any names, Legro confided that he lifted all of Palomino's character mannerisms from a star with whom he had just finished working with. I didn't do any additional research to figure out who that might be, but that is cool. That is swag. 
It's swag that you didn't look up who that actually was. Yeah, swag that I didn't fucking do my job. Uh, this was the first credited film role of Peter Dinklage, who had previously avoided the traditional elf and leprechaun type of roles offered to actors with dwarfism. In Living in Oblivion, he plays Tito, a frustrated dwarf actor who complains about the cliched roles. The film is divided into three sections. The first part was shot in five days after DeSillo realized it was too short to be a feature and too long to be a short. He expanded it into a full mm-hmm. feature film with parts two and three. The film title was taken from the hit 80s song by synth pop artists Anything Box. Are familiar with Anything Box? I am not familiar with Anything Box. That is quite the name of an album. Yeah, we love that from them. Thank you for giving us Living in Oblivion. Uh, yeah. Last two facts. Tom DeSillo worked as the cinematographer for James Jarmusch's films Permanent Vacation and Stranger Than Paradise before switching to directing. Kind of Interesting. Cool. Sorry, I'm just trying to see who this could have been. Uh, James Legros did some work before making Living in Oblivion, so it's hard to hard to decipher who. All he right, is. I got one he more. If you if here. you can figure Anyways. it out, well, let me know. I'll give you one more fact, then I'll give you my Mercedes Valuable Players and my recommend. But uh, mm-hmm. last fact: Tom Jarmusch plays the intern slash driver in this film and has worked on various films across the independent landscape as a PA, location scout in the props department, costumes, as well as other acting roles. And, of course, he is the brother of Jim Jarmusch. So, shout out to ah. shout out to that guy. That character is, again, these characters are archetypes, but they're funny in their archetypeness. You know, like, yeah. they don't necessarily subvert the expectation, but they are just very truthful in their depiction of that mm-hmm. archetype. And that's why I think the movie works. And so I will be giving my Mercedes Valuable Player to the little things. I'll be giving it to the shouting AD who's tr- actually trying to create lo- you know, law and order on set when in reality she's yeah. creating chaos. I'll give it to you know, the director freaking out you know, at the end of that first sequence when in reality he's just having a dream and he's you know, stressed about set. I'll give it to the, one- <laughs> the one-eyed DP who when asked if he can see says yes. You know, Just those little things about collaboration, trying to make a movie that are very truthful is why I think the movie is still being watched, you know, 25 years yeah. after the fact. So that's what I'll give Definitely. it to. And I will give this just a regular recommend. This isn't like run out and see it, but if you haven't seen it and it sounds interesting, it's worth checking out. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah. Again, not going to eat up too much of your day. So I'll give this a regular old recommend. Uh, I My MVP I'm going to give to a co-MVP to my two favorite performances in this movie, and that would be for Catherine Keener as Nicole and for James Legros as his character's name is Escaping Me. Um, Chad they, Palomino. Chad Palomino. Thank you very much. Um, they are to send like, so the movie is split up into three different sections. Um, uh, and the second section kind of focuses on a scene between Chad Palomino and Nicole I think they just have remarkable just um, chemistry together, and, and they're having. It looks like they are, even though they're shooting a scene where the the blocking is getting changed at the last minute. It looks like they, the actors, are having fun on set doing it. Um, and I just uh, that was my by far my favorite part of the movie. And I'm going to also give this a regular role recommend. Uh, it's on Criterion Channel. You could also probably find it elsewhere for free. Uh, but throw the watch. It's a fun. Fun, uh, it's a fun movie to watch uh, when you're in the mood for it. In the mood for living in oblivion. Mm-hmm. 
in the mood for living in oblivion. That could be the name of a Wong Kar Wai movie. <laughs> All right, we're done. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, we're done. Uh, Mason, we got to the end of the show. Congratulations. Snap, 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 snap. What, do you want me to plug first? I can plug first, or do you want to plug first? Uh, I'll plug first. I don't got much going on, and I'll, that's why I'll plug first. I don't got much going on. Just uh, you can find where I'm at at the link tree in the description. And I also am going to be um, showing up on um, past guest Heaven Ramirez's podcast um, from your lips, to, from my lips to your ringing ears, rather, on her for four part series exploring the films of David Lynch. We are going to be talk. We have talked Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. The Blue Velvet episode will drop the same day as um, this episode, um, and the next two episodes will be about uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me and Mulholland Drive. Uh, David Lynch is a uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. It has been such a treat the last two episodes to talk about his movies with Heaven, and uh, I hope you guys listen, and I hope you like it, and I think that is about it. Oh, the last episode of The Barn will be coming out soon, but you can always go back and listen to that project. Um, I got social media. I got bills. I gotta pay. <laughs> Do you remember that song by Lunch Money Lewis? I don't. From what? Lunch Money Lewis. That was the guy's name who did the song. Don't recall. Social media. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Whatever. That's it. Those are it. Uh, My favorite podcast. It's back. Holy shit. We came back with our first episode since me coming back from my trip. Talking about Golden Girls with staff writer for Merry Go Round Magazine, contributor to Atwood Magazine, and yes, the Los Angeles Times, Jesse Herb talking about golden girls so if you like golden girls this is a great pod if you hate golden girls it's a great pod and of course your local government on instagram and youtube at ylg.world on instagram your local government comedy on youtube sketch comedy that me and fed are making i think that's it mason take us out tell someone you love them this week do something that you love as you do that, we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. The love. I'm hanging on me, push and shove. Possession is the motivation that is hanging up. The goddamn nation looks like we always end up in.